Hey, and welcome to episode 23 of 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and joining me this week is Tracy D'Annunzio, founder and CEO of Tradesy, a marketplace for buying and selling designer goods. I was introduced to Tracy by one of her investors and instantly liked her. She's one of the most tenacious people I've ever met, having originally bootstrapped Tradesy by renting out her apartment on Airbnb while she slept on the couch. Her bravery and candor made this one of the most interesting interviews I've done yet, and I'm thrilled for you all to take a listen. Pleasure speaking with you again. Thank you for having me, Christina. Yeah. Um, so start by telling us about Trade Z, which, by the way, I can't say without wanting to say Tracy and Trade Z. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if you yes. get that a lot. <laughs> I do. My name is Tracy. My company's name is Trade Z. It rhymes. It's um, it was sort of a happy accident that ends up being um, easy to remember. So it all worked out, but that wasn't the idea of the name to begin with. Um, so Tradesy is a marketplace where women can buy and sell fashion straight from their closets. Uh, our buyers find deals at up to ninety percent off retail on pre-owned. Um, designer bags, shoes, clothing, and accessories. Our sellers are able to take things that they're no longer wearing or maybe never wore um, and turn those items into cash so that they can shop again. Um, So it's kind of a beautiful, virtuous cycle of women connecting to share and trade wardrobes via uh, collaborative commerce. Yeah. And, you know, with any marketplace business, it's always hard to build up one or the other side from the beginning. So I'd love to know more about kind of how you had this idea and and how you started building up that marketplace. Yeah, it's true. So how I had the idea was I think the way any any good idea comes. I had a problem. My friends all had a problem. We wanted to shop more. We didn't have big enough budgets. And of course, our closets were overflowing with things that we no longer wanted to wear. So mm-hmm. um, I was always great at being a consignment store junkie um, and I kind of knew how to work the consignment store racket but the idea of going out and kind of hunting through racks and all of that brick and mortar consignment was a little too time consuming for for most of the women I knew who also had that problem so I just wanted to bring that kind of magic of of shopping pre-owned to women everywhere and then getting the marketplace off the ground is 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 a fun um, is a great question and and a fun thing to to think back to because it's true that you know a marketplace is a funny thing you have buyers and sellers and you can't have buyers without sellers and you can't have sellers if there are no buyers so where do you begin it's very chicken egg and we did what what a lot of young scrappy marketplaces do we faked everything <laughs> we we <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how you do it. We, we bought um, when our sellers came on board and, and they weren't selling because we didn't have enough buyers. And, you know, this is 2013 in the very beginning, we would buy things from them, hold them and then flip them on the marketplace again to get the money back. Um, Mm -hmm. And then uh, when buyers would, and we, we would send teams out to local consignment stores and we would buy up a bunch of um, 
really good designer stuff. And then we would post it ourselves on the marketplace so that it looked like we had sellers. Um, and, and I would say that for the first three months, most of what the marketplace was, was us kind of trying to make it look like there was a marketplace so that buyers would come to see what sellers were selling and sellers would list, you know, in order to reach our buyers. But the magic of marketplaces that, that happens after they're hard to get started um, is that they have network effects. Mm-hmm. So, in the, you know, in the same way that buyers don't go where there are no sellers and vice versa, when there are sellers, buyers come. And when there are buyers, sellers come. And so we were um, both fortunate and also specifically um, laid out a, a formula to create a network effect. And, and that started taking effect pretty early and, and helped us grow the marketplace primarily through um, organic means. So, so that was sort of how we got it going, though. Yeah, I think that's great and shows your, your scrappiness in the beginning because this is one of those ideas that, you know, you wonder why people don't do it when you first think of an idea like this. Like, why is someone not doing this already? And I think it's mm. because it's so daunting, the idea of being like, well, how would you even get started? You know, how would we find the sellers and the buyers, et cetera? Um, so I love that you you kind of faked it until you made it. Totally. And and I think any marketplace business is, you know, you kind of have to start that way. Um, so I think we're we're not alone in having you know, sort of faked the marketplace, like seeded the marketplace um, Mm. with buyer and seller accounts. It was something I think we might have read about other marketplaces doing. And in the great Silicon Valley tradition, we took that idea and ran with it. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, speaking of the Valley, I know you and I have talked about this before, but for my listeners, what is it like? You're my first um, LA founder. So I'd love to talk about the startup scene in LA. And if you ever got pushback, to move to the Valley because I know some of your investors are actually up there. Yeah, I think, you know, LA is a really interesting place to build a company and I personally wouldn't have it any other way. I think there are good and bad things to building a company in any of the major startup hubs, whether it's San Fran or New York or LA. And in the early days, so, so I started, I started the early iteration of this company in 2009 um, in the wedding space. And for three years, I ran a peer-to-peer marketplace for for wedding dresses and wedding items and then went and raised money to expand into fashion. And so that that was when Tradesy was born in 2012. And in the years between 2009 and 2012, when I was just sort of bootstrap hustling and, you know, only met a handful of investors, um, I heard a lot of, well, you'll have to move to the Valley if you ever want to scale this. You'll have to, you, you know, ha- you can't build a company like this in L.A. And I think that was the conventional wisdom back in, in those days. Um, by the time I was ready to scale, there were some incubators popping up here, 20, 2011, 2012, 2013. We were starting to get a bit of a scene going Um and and quite frankly, now, you know, fast forward years later, I think L.A. has maybe the most vibrant startup scene anywhere in the U.S. And I would not rather be in the Valley um, for anything. I did, however, have that that classic thing around the Series A level where 
a couple of investors said, I would fund this if you were willing to move up here and build the company here. But I don't think that's a thing anymore. You know, the, yeah. that was more circa 2013. I think we've proven, um, you know, even this year with Snapchat and Dollar Shave that real, real big companies get built here and there's a vibrant community. Yes, definitely. And I love to hear that that's, that pushback is stopping just because, you know, there, there does, there is a big world outside of the Valley. <laughs> um, but now we're going to focus on you and talk more about what you were doing prior to being an entrepreneur. So let's get started about, you know, I know me and you hit it off because we're both New Yorkers. So you grew up in New York. I did Long Island, the, mm-hmm. the, the burbs outside of New York. City. Yeah. <laughs> and what did your parents do for a living? Uh, my mom was an EA, like an executive assistant, um, mm-hmm. and an office manager for a health insurance company. And my dad was an accountant who um, sometime in the 80s taught himself database programming mm-hmm. and uh, and so was doing, um, after that, a lot of computer programming, but not, not the way we think of it today, like web mm-hmm. programming more like building out database systems for various companies. Well, that's still really interesting, though, that he taught himself that. And so when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, one thing and one thing only. I wanted to be an artist. I was sure that I would be an artist, a painter. Um, and I was sure that I would live in Greenwich Village even before I actually knew what Greenwich Village was. So just <laughs> this idea of being like a bohemian. New York artist was I was positive there was no other thing I was going to be um so what so you were very into art then as a child throughout your entire childhood and then through college and things like that yes I went to art school um Mm -hmm. so I got my undergraduate degree at the school of visual arts in New York City and then I went to Mexico and got a degree from a, a master's in fine arts from um the Universidad de Guanajuato. That degree, I think, makes you less employable than if you had no degrees. Um, <laughs> but, but it was an incredible experience. Um, and uh, and yeah, I was a painter until I was thirty. I was I was just making art and kind of wandering, wandering the globe. So, what do you think, Ben? How do you transition from being an artist to kind of, you know, having your own lifestyle and really being accountable for no one else but yourself? than to running a company where you have so many employees? Like, how did you make that transition? <laughs> Messily. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I saw a tweet recently, I think from Naval at Angelus that said something, I'm going to mangle it, but it just said something like, it's not that responsible people become founders, it's that the act of founding makes us responsible. Um and I think that's the, you know, it's a very sobering reality when you, I, I started Tradesy almost like I would start any art project, you know, I sketched mm-hmm. it out, I had a big vision about it, um, felt, you know, passionate to the point of obsessed, would do whatever it took to make this idea materialize. Um, but then all these other things happened, like investors gave me their hard-won money because I promised them that I would turn it into more money. Um, and people staked their careers and their employment and their ability to, you know, take care of their families on jobs that we created. And that will, you know, give you the opportunity 
to to mature very very quickly. Um, and so I think you know I'm really grateful that that the company took off and that all the responsibility that came with it taught me to be um, to have more skills than than a bohemian artist that never has to worry about anything. And now I feel more skilled and more skillful, like I can handle a wider variety of circumstances. So um, the transition was, you know, it's it's always rocky. Being a startup founder is always challenging. But for me, I'm I'm just I'm so lucky to have had the opportunity to learn this much this fast. Yeah. And do you think that's something you did when you were younger, like love the ability to constantly learn? Were you ever seeking out activities that you knew you weren't good at or that you had no experience in just to try it? Yeah. For sure. I think if you're if you're like a I, I was always like a restless person and I hated school and I couldn't pay attention and I wanted to be doing 10 other things. And I think if you're like that, a really good trick is to pick activities and work where you're learning as you're doing, because it makes it that much more stimulating. Um, mm. Like when when I lived in in Mexico, I went there and I didn't speak a lick of Spanish. And Part of what made my time there so much fun is that everything I was doing was a dual activity of doing the thing I was doing while also doing it in a new language that I was learning while I was doing it. Mm. And so all the moments are a lot more full, you know, when when you're when you're not doing something that you know how to do, which can you know quickly become rote and repeatable and a little deadening, but you're constantly doing things that are new. It means you have to be brave as well because you're going to be more prone to mistakes. It means you have to be, you know, humble and know, you know, know when to listen because your lack of experience could could become problematic. But I think that, you know, learning as you do is one of the most fun things I could ever ask for. Yes, definitely. I, I think, though, that's such a good point about you know, a lot of the founders I've talked to necessarily don't fit in in school. Um, and one of them in particular, my brother's co-founder, said he grew up thinking that he was stupid just because he couldn't learn in the same way that everyone else was learning. And he is the type of learner that you mentioned, which is really learning by doing and then and then making your own rules um, from the beginning. So it's definitely something I'm interested in in terms of classical education. But, you know, what I, for you, you went from getting your master's, and then you went back to New York to be an artist. Did you ever live in Greenwich Village? I did. I achieved <laughs> the dream. I, I lived in Greenwich Village, and I called myself an artist at the time, although I might have sold one painting um, in that whole period. That was not a, a great period of my art career. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, like all things, um, the reality of it is very different than the dream of it. And um, and it was great and it was rewarding. And I still thought it was what I was going to keep doing forever. I just thought that I was really excited about this idea of building a website and would do that and see where that went. Um, but yes, I did. I moved back to New York after after art school in Mexico. And then I came out to L.A. to do an exhibit at a gallery in Santa Monica and just really fell in love with it and never left. Mm -hmm. I love that. And so when you were, you had this idea for Tradesy, was that the first time you thought about entrepreneurship as a profession? Yes. And I can't even say that when I had the idea, I thought about entrepreneurship as a profession. I, I actually just thought this website needs to exist. I should build it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. 
I but I, I love that. I, it's very not premeditated. It's just like, I here is another project. You clearly love creating. I mean, being an artist. And so it doesn't exist. I'm going to create it. I mean, isn't that kind of what art is about anyway? Exactly what it is. And, and I think that if you come from like a creative orientation and you're doing this entrepreneurship thing, um, then seeing it like an art project can be a really useful and refreshing way of dealing with the the kind of stresses of real business. So, mm-hmm. you know, you look at math and all of the numbers and the forecasts and the way, you know, the, the work of the day. Um, there was an artist in the 1940s named Joseph Boys. I think he was German. And he said, all the work of man is art. Like, you know, your your plumber is making art if he's like in a flow state doing what he does. So, I, I, this still feels like making art to me. It's just that mm-hmm. the art I make is, you know, something a little different. And it still speaks to the same audience I always wanted to speak to, which was women. So yes. that was my art was always oriented that way too. And, and that's such an interesting point to me because, you know, I think we've talked about this as well, but being a female CEO with a female oriented product with no prior experience, how do you, start to raise capital, especially when the venture capital industry is so male dominated. I mean, it's, it's a little, um, it's a little challenging. And I think it's, it's amazing the times we live in because um, we're, it's like we're living in dog years. When I think back to my early stage fundraising experiences as a woman with a, you know, a concept that was designed to, for, for women customers it was, you know, the years were 2011, 2012, and I think things have already shifted pretty dramatically. But mm-hmm. at that time, um, it was challenging in all the classic ways it can be challenging. Like men, the the venture capitalists I pitched were almost invariably men, um, and they didn't necessarily automatically kind of get it because it did it wasn't really made for them to get it and mm-hmm. um and I think a lot of women get it you know you got an overflowing closet nothing to wear wouldn't it be <laughs> great if you really easily sell the things that you're no longer wearing so you could buy the things you feel like wearing now um but I think that um I think that it, that was a little harder for the men to kind of to grasp mm-hmm. onto um, you know, that said, this is a really tricky topic for, for women CEOs to talk about because by nature, fundraising and pitching your company and trying to get people to give you real hard dollars for, you know, an idea that's kind of out of the box or whatever, that's always going to be hard and yes. filled with rejection. And there's no A-B test for this. Like, I can't go back and do those same pitches as a man to figure out whether the reason I got rejected in many cases was, you know, because I was a woman and that impacted the investor's perception. So for, for this conversation, I always just like to look at the data, which Mm -hmm. says that less than 3% of venture funding goes to female founder CEOs. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's something like 7% of venture capitalists are women. I think it's really clear and easy to see that, you know, if you have a room full of the same kind of person sitting around a table, they're going to have blind spots and they're going to invest in the things that, that are in their reality and not be connected to the reality of a more diverse group, including women. It's just yes. it's clear what that is. 
It's so funny though, because when I hear the idea for tradesy, I instantly think of my own closet and I just keep thinking, oh my God, I have to sell so many of the things I have in there. It's it's just yeah. funny that as a female, it's the first thing I think of is my own myself. I'm thinking, wow, that's that's such a great idea because I'm constantly shopping and there's no space for it to go and I hate clutter. So, uh, but more so, I, I love your story because I'm thinking though, with your background as an artist as well, you know, and you have no prior experience entrepreneurship. And I think what I heard um, when you were on Joanne's podcast was about how you would like sell, rent out your room on Airbnb to raise that initial funding. And so how did you convince yeah. them, you know, you have no background in this and you have no experience and for venture capitalists, it's so important, you know, being a serial founder is always a good signal. Um, and, and if you have no, presumably no business background. Yeah, nobody was funding me. I mean, for in. <laughs> You know, there was just no way. And by the way, in 2009, when I launched the first iteration of the site, I didn't even know what the what VC stood for. You know, I was utterly disconnected from this world. I thought I'll build a business. I'll I'll make this thing and then people will spend money and I'll make money. Um, simple, you know, like, like what we all grew up understanding a business to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and only when I started to feel like my ambitions were really big for it um, in terms of scale, did I start to get kind of familiar with what the the VC track looks like and how you raise capital and all of that. Um, and the, there's a funny thing that that most VCs say that, that I find really, really telling. Um, as a very early stage entrepreneur with zero connections and zero background, every VC that I wanted to connect with once I understood that as a goal the way to reach them was they said, get a warm intro. That's sort of a VC thing, right? They don't, Mm -hmm. most of them don't take like a blind submissions of your deck. They say, if you want to talk to us, get a warm intro, find a connection, get an intro. Well, I didn't have any connections and I mean zero. Um, So I started side hustling to bootstrap because I didn't quite qualify to raise capital um, and Airbnb was brand new and I decided I could sleep on my couch, which I was doing half the time anyway, cause I'd fall asleep <laughs> on my laptop trying to teach myself how to code. I thought, well, Hey, I'm half, half the time I'm sleeping on this couch. Anyway, my bedroom is just sitting there. I could rent it out. That would cover my, my rent. And then I would be able to afford to not have to get another job or do other things to, to, and I could put all my attention into the company. So I did that. Um, a funny, a funny thing that happened along the way is that my first Airbnb guest and I hit it off. And seven years later, we've been married for a really long time. And that's, how, um, that's, that's amazing. I love that. That's such a, I mean, that's the best perk you could ever think of. But I, I love your story because it's, there's so many opportunities for you to quit and say, like, I don't know how to code. I don't have any connections to VC firms. And it seems like you're the type of person where that didn't even cross your mind. You just said like, oh, I'll teach myself how to code. Oh, I'll rent out my room. So did you ever have a moment where you were thinking like, maybe I should just give up? Uh, only like 20 times a day. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, for sure. I mean, the the amount of kind of, you know, self-doubt that any any sane early stage entrepreneur would go through um, I definitely experienced it, and I think there were a cu- there were two things that made me not want to quit. Um, one was that you know I've I had 
dealt with challenging things in life. So I had developed some of the muscles required to kind of withstand that discomfort. Um, and that came in handy. So that's just a way of saying that, like, if you've been through hard stuff in life. It may serve you later. Um, it, it may you may find that it gives you the strength to deal with other hard stuff um, in ways that other people may not be able to. So that was like a silver lining for me that things I had gone through, you know, earlier in life with my health, et cetera, ended up giving me great lessons for around mm-hmm. resilience. Um, but also, I had another more practical motivation for not quitting, which I think is also useful. Um, I had no money. I had no money. I had um, maxed out my credit cards. I had, you know, borrowed all I could from anyone who would give me a dollar. Um, and I was all in. And and if I quit, I was going to leave all that, you know, ten, twelve thousand dollars which at the time was an absolute fortune to me. I was going to be leaving that. And where was I going to go? I, I didn't really have another option but to make this work. Or, or I wouldn't have had employment. And, you know, it was after 2008, the art world was different. Um, it was harder to sell work. So mm. I think a lot of times when people have financial constraints, they, they think, oh, this sucks. And, you know, everyone knows people whose parents can give them, you know, half a million dollars in startup funding to pursue their dream. And it's like, why don't I have that? Um, and I actually think that not having that is such a gift because, the 20 times a day I wanted to quit, I just wasn't an option. And that, that was important for me to learn about and go through. Yes. No, I think that's such a good point. Um, and so, you know, you're now you're at the series, you're past series C and how have you evolved as a founder along with the company? And is there anything you really miss about those earlier days? Oh gosh. Um, Yes, I, there's tons that I miss, um, but also I wouldn't trade today for then, you know, ever because it's just as it's just as new and exciting right now as it was when you know we were three people in my living room. Um, I think <laughs> I've you know I've I've just matured a lot. I'm we're we've raised seventy five million dollars. You know, we have over 100 employees, we have millions and millions of customers, many of whom use the platform to, um, as a business for themselves to make money. So I think that with the um, the responsibility of overseeing uh, an ecosystem that big comes a lot of, a lot of growing and maturing. So I think that's sort of, you know, and I'm still, gosh, I have so much still to learn But I think that the biggest change is that, you know, I was a lot more fast and loose with decisions um, and, you know, prone to being like whimsical about um, how we ran things in the early days. And I think that's changed a lot now because the reality is that, you know, every decision we make affects a lot of people. Yes, definitely. All right. Well, now we are going to switch to our final few minutes of fun questions. Um, so what is the best book for founders to read? Oh gosh, see, I'm the worst for this because I'm not, um, so into business books. There's the classic Andy Grove book that everybody needs to read. Um, that's amazing. And there's the good to great by Jim Collins that everybody needs to read. Um, 
the the Andy Grove book is called High Output Management, um, and it's just like a great primer. But I would also say like read read about history. Um, mm-hmm. For me, like I get the greatest comfort from reading like really dull books about history because it gives me perspective on a lot of things like um, like that the decisions we're making are not the biggest decisions ever made in history. So that's refreshing and <laughs> allows you to think a little more freely and also sort of patterns of society, governance, war, peace over history are filled with lessons about how to run and scale an organization. Um, and they're not the direct lessons of like, you know, have an 8.30 a.m. executive meeting. They're more like the philosophical lessons. And that's that's what I like to learn about. I, I mm-hmm. feel like that, you know, that gives me more horsepower in my role than reading about sort of like management techniques all the time. Yes, definitely. I I like that. That's a very new response that I've heard. And so what other areas of tech or what other startups get you really excited right now? Oh, gosh. So I think now I've been um, I've actually been working with some of our early investors, um, including Rincon Venture Partners, who, you know, on um, evaluating new deals. And I think it's going to be very unoriginal, but um, the like virtual reality space and AI mm-hmm. are just fascinating to me. Right. Right now, um, I'm a little obsessed with Neuralink, the new Elon mm-hmm. Musk venture. Yeah. yeah neural mesh and all that so that that whole area I think is is super exciting and it has that good venture feeling of like we don't really know if we're gonna you know like flying cars like are we gonna get there even in our lifetime there's so much science and tech to be explored and resolved I I like that feeling of I think venture is supposed to be a risky game where if you lose you lose one extra money and if you win you win you know 100x and and that that's the way to do it so those are the things that i i'm excited about the really ambitious stuff yeah me too i mean i I like to see that people are dreaming really big and, and to see it's exciting just to, to finally see those to ask those questions right if these grand visions that we've had like since the 80s movies came out about the future are actually going to happen and if we'll be alive to see that um, and finally, if you could interview one founder, who would you want to interview and why? You know, I'm going to I'm going to have a really interesting answer to this one because I just watched um, the girl boss show on Netflix over the weekend. Yeah. And I'm OK. Yeah. Amoruso, which is um, because I think we need to to you know, she's been through a lot of ups and downs, meaning, you know, that with her own personal brand and then her her company obviously was you know flying high and then it went bankrupt and 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 I think that um not not judging those experiences and that journey but looking at it as an opportunity to learn and and keeping the right amount of sort of respect and admiration for a person who um has seen all of that what can we learn mm-hmm. from her you know yeah. I I I think I and that's very contextual because I watched the series and I read some of the reviews and I thought, gosh, we're all missing the point. This woman has a story to tell about, you know, real business and startup life. And, and you know, let's ask. So yes. today, that the answer to that question is I'd, I'd, I'd interview Sophia. I think that's a great answer. I also think it's a really interesting perspective on how people classically 
you know, are quick to say something's a failure or someone is a failure because they've tried and, and maybe had that success. Um, so yeah, I, I really appreciate that. That was super thoughtful. I was, I was going to leave you with a brilliant quote from my, um, one of my board members, Stephanie Telenius, that I think okay. is just, it, I think about it, it's relevant to that. Um, she just always tells me, you're never as good as they say you are, and you're never as bad as they say you are. And I think that's like a great, you know, when you're, when you're entrepreneuring and things are going well or poorly, remember that because um, the, the idea is don't ride the highs so high and the lows so low and you'll get really good at this game really fast. I love that. That is, thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Um, well, it's a great way to end it. So thank you, Tracy from Trade Z for being on my show. <laughs> Still <laughs> All right, and that's a wrap on episode 23. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and stay up to date with us on Twitter at 52founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode.